Hello, internet friends. Welcome back to another really exciting episode of Render Time. I'm Richard Lutz, and it is my goal to break down some of the decisions and techniques that go into some of the biggest TV shows, movies, commercials, music videos, and other pieces of content in the world. This is part two of my conversation with Vicky Sampson. If you listened last week, you know that Vicky is a sound mixer and sound designer, and she has worked on some of the biggest films in the world. Everything from Pirates of the Caribbean, Donnie Darko, Return of the Jedi, Speed, the list just goes on and on and on. And in this week, we continue that conversation. We talk about how she is pursuing other things outside of sound and how she's moving into directing and how she's trying to expand her capabilities as a filmmaker because it is so easy in this industry to get caught doing one thing, being that sound, being that cinematography, editorial, producing. It is good to step outside of that and find new ways to push ourselves creatively and ultimately challenge ourselves. So let's get into it. Let's continue the conversation with Vicky. Here we go. What has been your favorite project that you've worked on? <laughs> Ooh, that's a tough one. Hmm. Um, my favorite project. Well, I think my, my favorite one that I supervised myself was uh, Ironweed. Um, at, which hardly anybody ever saw with Jack Nicholson and Meryl Streep, period film. Um, and it, it was a lot of work to get it to be what it was. You know, very, it was a very dark movie, and, um, you know, we had real steam trains, which are hard to come by. Um, and I was on it for a very long time, too, which was nice. Um, but it was, it was challenging, and um, I liked that one a lot. Okay. I mean, I liked working on Return of the Jedi because I got to go to London and record all the cool English actors like Alex, Sir Alec Guinness and before he was a Sir. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that was that was fun. That Return of the Jedi is my favorite Star Wars film. <laughs> I mean, Rogue One was pretty good, but Return of the Jedi of the original trilogy, mm. oh my God, like, what was it like to work on Return of the Jedi, especially at the height of... Star Wars. I mean, it's Star Wars is known the world over, but yeah, to be, what was it like to have to be working on that film, especially? Um, well, it felt it, it was nice because it was it was you know another job. I mean, it was Lucas. It was uh, uh, it was that time period where um, you really got to sink your teeth into something. And we had a big crew. I th- I posted on Facebook. Our crew, we had like 30 people working on it. And and my little phase of it was just going to London to record all the English people and uh, editing. And so, um, yeah, it was, uh, it felt it felt good because I, I felt like I could contribute my, my knowledge because back then um, the way ADR was set up was that it only recorded after the third beep. So the beeps would go beep, beep, beep. And then where the imaginary beep, the fourth beep would be, would be where the person would speak. And the recorders didn't record until that imaginary fourth beep. So every time they would go to say a line, naturally you inhale before you say a line. And the inhales would always come over the beeps, which were out on the speakers so that the actor could hear where the beeps were. So I could never use any of those inhales because they were covered up by the beep sound. Does that, does that make mm-hmm. sense? So I, there was a shot of this one guy, stormtrooper guy, a medium shot, and they had the whole hangar stormtrooper guys in the background. And you can see his shoulders go up. And one of the telltale signs of ADR is that you don't, you don't hear the breathing. And breathing makes movies feel lifelike, <laughs> literally and figuratively. So uh, I was trying to find anywhere I would make notes on my sheets about where the actor might have breathed that I could steal from and put at the head of the thing, but I couldn't find any in this instance. And so I said, can we just program the breathe, the inhale at the beginning of the thing? Oh my God, really? How, why is that going to make a difference? There's all this noise in the big hangar. We're never going to hear it. What? I don't get it. You know, I said, please just trust me. It'll only take a few seconds. Let's just get it while we're here. 
And so they, they complied, and, they, and then they called me back from the, the dub stage because I was already back here in L.A., and they were dubbing up north. And uh, they said, you were right. Nobody can believe it's ADR because of that inhale, you know. And their feeling was like they didn't want to do it, you know. They thought it was ridiculous. But so I was able to educate them as to the power of breathing. <laughs> what was the biggest lesson you took away from that film? From Jedi? Um, well, <laughs> I don't know if I told the story at the at that meeting, but uh, the biggest lesson was never leave the finished film in your car overnight, the night before you're about to take off uh, to go to London. <laughs> yeah, I had I had the two boxes of film because it was on film reels in my car, and I knew I was going to London in winter the next day, and I had my two daughters with me who were like six and eight at the time. And I had my cue sheets, which were not on computer. They were just typed up cue sheets, my passport, my tickets. I had all these clothes that I had prepared and they were all hanging. So I stopped at the sporting goods store in Hollywood thinking that I, I needed thermal underwear to go to London in, in winter, <laughs> like it was some uncivilized country or something. I don't know what I was thinking. They're British, they're uncivilized. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so, and I stopped, I parked, you know, which is now like uh, Hollywood and Orange. And there was a sporting goods store there. And I had this flash. I was in my 67 Mustang with my, my two daughters. I had this flash like, mm, this is probably not a good idea to leave the car. I was, oh, I'll just, you know, in my head, I'm going, oh, it'll just be a few minutes, you know. Come out, my window is smashed. The film is taken. The clothes were taken. They left my little briefcase thing with the, the notes and the passport. And I was like, oh, and I was so upset. And my, my little daughter, Sarah, she kind of put her arms around the back of my neck. And she goes, it's okay, Mommy. At least they didn't hurt us. And I'm like, you don't understand. This is Star Wars. You know, I mean, she was eight, right? Um, so I had to call up Lucasfilm. This was like 9 o'clock at night, the night before I'm supposed to get on a plane at noon to fly to London. And my first time, you know, on a Star Wars, oh, well, it was the second, what was it, the second one or the third one? This was the third, third one. one. right? And... Um, so they had to call up George and tell him he was already in London. They had to send uh, detectives down from, you know, up north to search through the trash cans in Hollywood to see if they could find the film and did it happen. And they had to call in an assistant overnight to deconform the film back to my footages because they were already like a couple versions ahead. And the guy met me at the airport the next day, hands me the film and then gets back on a plane and goes to San Francisco and I get on the plane to go to London. I land there, and uh, I, I was, like, so nervous. I had broken out in, like, hives, you know. And, of course, they fly you first class, which is really nice. And it was my first, like, out-of-the-country flight ever, you know. And uh, I think I was, I was about, like, your age when I did this. And um, so I get to London, and they, they whisk me off to Abbey Road Studios where Johnny Williams is conducting the, the orchestra, and George was sitting in the corner with big head had noise canceling headphones because he was sitting right next to one of those huge speakers and i just looked at him and i went i'm i mouth you know like i'm sorry you know like that and he just mouth, you know he mouthed back he kind of shrugged his shoulders and like man it's okay you know like Gosh. it happens like so so I, I haven't worked on a star wars film since do you think that had anything to do with I, I don't know but it's like <laughs> it didn't but i god like by today's standards that would be a colossal mistake i know like Oh my god! Like I, I'm, I'm just. And they're like, "Did it have the name of the film on it?" Because we were going by a code name, you know. And I, and I said, "Yeah, I think it did." You know, it didn't say Gold Harvest or I forget what the code word was, the code name of the movie. I always think it was Savage Harvest, but everybody keeps correcting me. Do you know what it was? I have no Blue idea. Blue Harvest. I don't know. It was one of the, something Harvest. I remember. And uh, I said, "No, it did have the name of. You know, it was called Revenge of the Jedi at the time." And they changed it to Return later because they thought... I even have t-shirts still that says Revenge of the Jedi, which I ended up painting my house in. So it has like all these... Because who knows? You know, you got stuff from the production. Yeah. You know, nobody knows if something's going to be famous or not, you know? You just work on it the best you can and uh, that's what you do, so... But like, what it's cool to me <laughs> because it's like Return of the Jedi, for many young people... I mean, I saw Star Wars when I was... I want to say six or seven years old. I wasn't formally introduced to it by my parents. I was, uh, I saw it through, I was on a local Fox affiliate. Mm -hmm. And 
I remember seeing it, and it, 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 this was like back in the days, and I'm, I'll even date myself, where we had CRTVs, and we had like 20 channels at best. <laughs> right, we didn't right. have like the <laughs> infinite channels, and we had VHSs. I remember seeing it, and even at that young age, recognizing that it was something special, and this was different, and yeah. I had no idea what Star Wars was, but I remember seeing it on TV and thinking to myself, I have to sit down and watch this. So... I mean, it certainly was groundbreaking in so many ways. I mean, sound being the main one that, you know, because in 77 when Star Wars came out, there wasn't anything like that, you know, that we that we knew of. And, of course, my mom, who was friends with George Lucas because of Verna, um, you know, he uh, came to my mom and said, you know, I've got this movie called Star Wars and I'd like you to do the sound on it. And she's like, oh, George, you know, I, science fiction isn't my thing. It's like, mom, you. Of course, we did. Who knew? You know, and to me, it sounded really stupid. Like a war out in space. That sounds really dumb. <laughs> that was my first thought. <laughs> so you know, and then of course it became this huge thing, and uh, you know. Oh my God! It's, it's Star Wars. <laughs> but like... see, that's what my mom taught me too. Is that she knew her limitations, you know, and she liked working on dialogue driven movies and not big splashy sound effects movies that's why when she did the river um, her peers knew that 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 would probably be the film if she were going to get an oscar which she really deserved that would be the film to do it with and so they voted unanimously on that film to get an oscar because that's the way the the movies were set up back then on with the academy they don't do that anymore they, we get five on the ballot, just like all the others. So there's still visual effects, and I think hair and makeup that do what they call a bake-off, um, where you know you show me your best sound effects, and I'll show you mine, kind of like. And there's no cookies involved at all. But um, what is the fun in that? Then? I know. God, I'm just. So Star Wars was, you know, and we recorded it in this old cow barn, which I found fascinating. Because it was a, a, a you know arched uh, entries where they used to bring the cows across from Hyde Park or Green Park, one of those parks, and they would lead them down into this cow barn. Well, that was you know years ago, and they had turned it into a recording studio. And I remember the guy's name was Lionel Strutt, and I thought, oh, it's such a fancy British name for recording. And all yeah. British names are really fancy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I worked at official. If you move that chair away from the wall, it won't like make those creaks. There you go. Oh, you're right. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> more, more fully for this um, little thing. Um, I want to be respectful of your time. You've, oh. you've. Uh, I um, told you I could go on for hours. Yeah, but there's so there's so many things. I mean, I think my main thing is like, you you want to experiment. I mean, nobody knows. Ben Burt didn't know how to make a sound, a sword sound. You know, he didn't know how to do that. He just experimented a lot and came up with something really cool. You know, by waving the microphone in front of a speaker, you know, he made that, that, you know, but sound, sound editing and sound design is all experimentation, but you want to be open to hearing things and trying things because it's just like picture editing. You have to try different shots and different combinations of shot and what you think you might've cut together originally when you saw the stuff doesn't work for one reason or the other. The performances don't match or the or the continuity doesn't match and you wanna go for the, the feeling because films are really all about feelings, you know? Sounds create feelings, music creates feelings. The dialogue even creates feelings, you know? And you just play around with it. Like, what would it sound like if there was, um, you know, uh, a river behind us in this in this room, you know, outside? Like, do we ever see the river? Well, then it might be a hard sell. You know, I get I get directors who do films in New York, and they go, we got to hear the garbage cans, you know, the, the trash guys. I said, do we ever see them? No. Like, if they had one shot, like looking out a window at a garbage truck, you could put that sound anywhere else throughout the whole movie, and everybody would identify what that sound was. But do you just have an, an innocuous sound coming up from nowhere it's, you know, it, it, it's more disconcerting than it is supportive. And I think that's the key. You want to, you want, you don't want anything in a film to draw attention to itself. You don't want the cinematography, you don't want people to be sitting there going, wow, that was a really cool shot how they did that. Or, wow, did you hear that sound? Because then you're not in the movie. You're, you're a voyeur looking at 
a product. And even me, with all my experience of, of watching films, making films, I still want to go to, go to a theater and just be swept away. I want to be caught up in that world, you know, if it's out in space or if it's on a mountain somewhere, if it's in a, a hospital, you know, wherever it is, I want to be in that space. I don't want to be distracted by seeing something out of sync or, you know, I mean, I'll notice things that are bad because that's, you know. Well, that's true of all filmmakers. Like, I'll notice things where I'm like, I'll be staring like, it feels like it's like two frames off between oh. picture and sound. I hate that. Yeah. And it's like, I'm looking at it and I'm like, is it? I yeah. can't tell. I think it is, but I'm not sure. It's just yeah. those little production details. Right. They're mm. important and they all add up. You know, if you don't, it's like, uh, you know, some people say, well, I, don't, I didn't notice it. It doesn't bother me. When I've heard directors say that, it's like, oh my God, are you serious? It's like, this is why you've hired us as professionals. I mean, my other most favorite film is on Golden Pond. That was a great experience. I loved working on that. Because it was, um, I mean, it was with Mark Rydell. My mom and I did all of his movies from 1973 to 96 when she retired. And he didn't make films anymore. He made TV movies or something. But he's just a great, a great filmmaker and very respectful of everybody's position. And, um, I mean, that's why The River was so great. Because he, he knew ahead of time that we were going to need kind of a library of sound effects that were indigenous to Tennessee at that farm and the, that place. And so he hired a separate sound mixer and sent my mom to Tennessee to record a whole library of the farm equipment, the smelting plant, the, the farm, the city, you know, all these things that were fresh and new. And that's what, you know, I encourage people to go buy Zooms and just record their environment, you know? Is there certain microphones that they should be using? What, or are the onboard microphones that I'm touch, touching now that everybody can hear listening, yeah. are those good enough? Are there they certain are. microphones? I mean, you can plug in, you know, it, it depends on what you're doing. If you're doing something real specific or if you need a stereo spread. Most of, most of the sounds that we put in movies are mono recorded because the spread in, in a stereo recording isn't wide enough to really give you that stereo feel. So people will record in mono and double it up on speakers, you know, that come out. It, it really depends on what, on what the situation is. Like I've recorded, you know, I go every day about four o'clock, I get these, uh, murder of crows that fly over my <laughs> my house and so i every now and then i run out there and i record them it sounds like i run out with my zoom yeah um so yeah i mean you can you know my motto here's here's my whole career of sound ready hit me if it sounds good it is good okay that's it that's perfect because if it doesn't sound good you're not done yet if it doesn't sound good, you're not, you didn't choose the right sound, you know, and, and I mean, we have the advantage in Pro Tools of being able to layer and hear all these layers. When I first started out, you had, you could only hear one track at a time and you had to imagine how these different sounds would sound together and you only heard them once you got to the dub stage. It's interesting to me because it's like, I mean, I never worked on film. I, I've, I started on Final Cut. In high school, wow. uh, senior senior year, my parents were not thrilled that I wanted to spend three hours of my day, Monday through Friday, learning how to edit. It was easily probably the best decision my parents ever let me do because <laughs> I fell in love with it. Yeah. And uh, I, I had, I made them sit down with my guidance counselor to let them convince my parents into like saying that this is something good that is, this is something good for him. Mm-hmm. Cool. I started out on Final Cut Pro. I've never touched film. I've never really worked with... I have with... some you can touch. Well, you had, you had, you had some... <laughs> well, I saw the ones there. that you gave out at the <laughs> uh, the Los Angeles post-production yeah. group. How has going from... Techno- how has technology influenced filmmaking from your perspective? Mm. Going from working with little strips of sound to working in a big system like Pro Tools, how has that impacted filmmakers? And how can younger filmmakers, especially ones who are exploring sound, exploring picture, use those pieces of technology to really make things that are impactful? And what can they can what can they be doing? Should they learn the software and then get out of the way of the software and just think of it as a new another tool? Or what should they be doing? Hmm. 
Yeah, because the, the process is the same and, and the reasons why you're editing are the same. It's just you're using a different technology. I mean, I tried to show my mom how Pro Tools worked, you know, and she just couldn't get it. Number one, she wasn't a computer person and um, it just didn't make sense. Even though I say, okay, the white space that you see on the screen, that's like fill leader. That's the spacer that we used to use between pieces of sound. These little, these little clips, these little pieces, those are like the mag. And she's just like, I don't, I just don't get it. So a lot of people her age, you know, because I think I started on Pro Tools in 92, something like that. And they just, they just went, you know what? I'm, I'm out of here. If we're not using Moviolas, I just can't do it anymore. I mean, Michael Kahn, who's, um, you know, famous film editor, works with Spielberg. They stayed on film for a long time. I think just recently they finally, because there's a certain thinking time that especially with film editing, you know, there's a certain rhythm that you get by going back and forth in the moviola. Um, and then you have to commit to a spot. Like they would go back and forth and then, you know, and I, and I watched them do this and I did this myself. Like you run the film through and then you hit the, 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 the stop, you know, there's a stop bar on the moviola. And if you did that consistently in the same frame a couple times, that would be the place to cut because you can't just say, Oh, I'm going to add another frame here. Cause you had to, physically cut and then you know splice on tape and you can't have all these little pieces of tape where you've decided you've added a couple frames here and a couple frames there or something like that you'd have to order another take of the of the of that scene and re-edit it so I mean and, and none of that really matters I think to young people because you know it, it's now all about what's now it's it's like if i said i had to trudge you know to school in the snow or something like nobody cares because it doesn't make any difference i had to go up i had to, I had to trudge to school in the snow uphill both directions <laughs> oh. but that's because my, where i went to college was on oh. a hill like, yeah and it's i mean i didn't because i grew up in california so i never trudged through snow but you know people said oh i had to trudge across shag carpet to change the channel on the tv you know, because we didn't have remotes back then. <laughs> first, first world problems, ladies and gentlemen. Exactly. But I think I think the thing is, like, keep watching movies and, um, you know, learn learn by watching what's out there. You know, if you have a favorite, uh, like David Lynch is a great example of a, a filmmaker who really knows sound because he was a sound editor, you know, and so he uses sound to his advantage. Um I mean, if you personally don't know how to use sound or you have no idea about it, then you hire people who do, you know, and that's the key is like you let people do their jobs that they're known for, um, you know, and you learn as much about it as you can. I mean, I think for young, young filmmakers, uh, if they want to do sound, just contact, if, if they're not in a film school, contact the film schools or the programs at film schools like the AFI's Directing Workshop for Women. They always need people to come do film editing, do sound editing, do mixing, do production mixing. Um, you know, so there's, there's a lot of opportunities for working on people's projects and you just get good and then people actually hire you to, and they pay you to do what you want to do. You also, on the, on the other hand, you may find that you hate it. You know, there's a lot of people who said, you know, gosh, I really don't like, I don't like the schedule. I mean, I know a lot of um, sound editors who just did it for a while and they got out of it because they said, I'm never, I'm never home. I can't see my family. I'm not seeing my kids. You know, everybody's growing up and it's not worth it to me, you know. But a lot of us stayed in it because the money was good. Our reputations got known. We got good at what we did and we keep doing it. So... Yeah. What are you working on now? What projects are you currently involved with other than... Other than my own? <laughs> well, those two. Um, I'm actually just was in talks today with a producer of a feature film called Rust Creek. Um, I, I just finished a pro, uh, another film called Phobic, which is... I keep getting these horror films. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't, I don't like horror films. I don't like the images like running in my head all the time, you know? And, and I just kind of divorce myself from like what they're about and just deal with my little area of dialogue editing. Um, and then, uh, well, I'm finishing up my 40 minute film that I just directed and did the film editing and some of the sound editing, although I did turn that over to uh, a friend who wants some practice mixing. So he's he's doing that and putting, putting together a 5.1 mix and then we'll, we'll be getting our music in any day now and then I'll, listen to that and see if I like it. Uh, hopefully I will. And, um, you know, make some tweaks on it. 
But um, yeah, so I, I keep doing little, you know, non-union projects here and there because, you know, sound-wise. But mainly, I'm trying to concentrate on writing, directing. I'm I'm supposed to direct another short film called Small Whispers, uh, maybe by the end of March or April. And then I'm up for uh, I'm attached to direct a ten point five million dollar feature called Revolutionist, and we're trying to attach Ashley Judd and Jeff Bridges to it and we've already got Sally Kirkland and Lou Ferrigno and, and Erica Hubbard you know so they're we're trying to get more known people we're going to shoot in Kentucky so I'll be sure to record some good cicadas and crickets and things like that with a piece like that you have to have good cicadas yeah like that's gonna right I mean, that should that should win an Oscar just off cicadas it should. Anyway, anyways. Well, you know, it's funny you mention that because on the on the Bill Paxton movie, um, Frailty. Um, do you know that movie? I do not. Yeah, you should you should check it out. It's a very uh, dark movie. Uh, Matthew McConaughey's in it, and uh, anyway, so Bill grew up in Texas, and he's very. Um, but they shot in Alhambra, so he always said. I was always on as the dialogue ADR person, and he had another sound editor as as effects. And he says, okay, it's really important to me to get authentic Texas crickets. And we said, great, okay. So the first temp dub we do, guy puts in some kind of crickets. So Bill says, so we cut in these crickets. I didn't cut them in. The effects supervisor cut them in. Bill says, no, those are not authentic Texas crickets. I'm sorry. And anyway, he fired the guy, not for just for that reason, but for got another sound editor. Again, did another temp dub. No, uh, those, aren't, those aren't authentic Texas crickets. Fired that guy. Got another guy. He comes in, he goes, he goes to Malibu and he records um, frogs and crickets and, you know, whatever's out there in the creeks and puts them in the movie and Bill goes, now those are authentic Texas crickets. Thank you very much. And of course, nobody was going to tell him that they were recorded in Malibu. But this is what I mean about sound being very subjective. It's like, you know, if you're going to work for a director whose work is out there already, listen to the sound jobs on those movies and see what their taste is for that because they've accepted that sound you know i mean a lot of people don't really care about sound it's just this necessary evil but i i worked for this one director on this movie called transal transalmania or was it transalmania no transalmania it was about these uh college kids uh who go to transylvania and encounter uh, a duplicate like vampire like one of them's looks like the vampire of old anyway and the director and i had him sitting right here in, in this dining room and i played him some tracks because he had like a midget and then he had a giant and so i i pitched down the midget's voice and i pitched up the giant's voice so they were kind of opposite of what they usually are like you'd think of a, a midget as having a little high-pitched voice and he thought that was so creative and he's like, wow, I, I, I went to bed dreaming of production dialogue editing. And I said, well, you better see a doctor because that's, <laughs> you're sick. <laughs> it's funny because it's like, I, I, I wanted to make sure you got the title right. Yeah, it's like type in trans and. Yeah, it, um, it, it's Transylmania. Yeah, think. it's Transylmania, yeah. but then Transparent also came. I was like, whoa. Oh. Yeah, I worked on Transparent a, a couple episodes doing sound on that. ADR, like right? Show. Yeah. Oh, no, it's production dialogue. Dialogue editor. It says ADR editor oh, here. What, on, Transil, on, on Transparent? On Transparent. Whatever. It, it's IMDb. <laughs> it does not know. Yes. I'm not a database. That's what it should stand for. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, Transylmania. And so um, so the director loved those kind of choices. And, you know, sometimes I, when I'm editing, I'll pull handles out from the pieces that you get from the OMF, and I'll just find little goodies and gems, and, and I just think, oh, that would be cool to hear, and look at that. That's There it is right there, and I'll just put that in, and they'll say, oh, that's nice, or they'll say, no, that doesn't work. How so, many frames extra should editors be giving well, you? <laughs> As much as possible. I mean, I like to say five or ten seconds, but that makes some of the wow. sessions too dense. Ideally, if we had if we had a way of, of you know, most of the time I get a whole um, folder of all the actual production sound, so I can find anything if I want to look at a whole take. But I know that people's OMFs, you know, you like in Final Cut, you can't go over two gigs, you know, of, of an OMF. So. I was trying to give myself, <laughs> when I was going from my film editing hat to my sound editing hat, like, oh, I want three seconds handles. Nope, can't do that. All right, one second, you know. So as much as possible, because you're, you know, you're pulling things out to overlap, and sometimes you need to find the ambient background that will mask itself by overlapping. So, And I think it's really important for film editors to cut in 
uh, as much sound as they can. In fact, on some films like Evan Almighty, we gave the picture editor the actual sounds of eventual animals that would be CGI so that he could get, he could put them in his session and get Tom Shadiak, the director, used to hearing like cockatiels or parrots or whatever they were. And those sounds stayed in the whole time. Like we gave them to him just, oh, here's something to just cut in those. And if we changed them, Tom would say, where's that? I love that, that parrot sound you had before. Oh, you mean the temp sound? Yeah. Okay. We'll put it back in, you know, so they get used to, oh, you funny. know, because when you attach, you attach new sounds to images, it really opens up people's minds and worlds, you know, and especially for things like to give you a funny example on, on my short Shelby's Vacation, I have uh, this fellow who's also a filmmaker and he, we put him on as associate producer because he's, he looks at every cut and he makes suggestions. And so this last time he goes, I'm really missing hearing her footsteps up the pathway. It's like. Yeah. And even for me, I'm like, I'm so used to hearing it without footsteps that it doesn't even occur to me anymore, you know? So what's the story on Shelby's Vacation? I, I watched the trailer and it, it I liked it. Um, what, who, who came to you with the script or was it something that you wrote? Um, no, I didn't write it. Nancy Beverly wrote it and uh, she put a, uh, an email out to our women's director group called the Alliance of Women Directors, alliancewomendirectors.com. And, For um, all you female filmmakers that yes. want those opportunities. Yes, check us out, allianceofwomendirectors.com. There's our plug for the show. All right, cool. Um, and uh, so she put out an email, you know, saying she had this project. So I, I wrote back to her and um, I said, oh, yeah, please send me the script. I'm interested because I wanted to do a first feature. I'd done all these shorts. I did a Harley Davidson ad, the Her Need for Speed, mm -hmm. which you can find on YouTube. Um, and, uh, you know, and I was ready to do a feature. And so she wrote back and I said, yes, please send me the script. Well, I'm like a couple months goes by and I, I was working over at Sony on a hot tub time machine. And I, I said, gosh, she never sent me the script. You know, this was like in 2014. That's how long I've been working on it. Um, and um, so she wrote back and she goes, yeah, I did send it. And I said, I never got it. So she sent it again. I read it and I really, I liked it. You know, I connected to it. And, um, and we met a couple times and she'd had interviews with a bunch of other women directors and, and she finally picked me for it. And then we tried for a year to get attached, you know, name talent. I even approached Hillary Swank at, after a screening and said, cause she said she hadn't done any romantic comedies. And I handed her a postcard that we had made up and said, well, here's a romantic comedy for you. And her agent called me and said, oh, do you, are you fully financed? And we went, no, but if she attaches her name, we will be. And she goes, oh, we don't do that anymore. And I said, can't we think outside the box? These actors say they want to do stuff, but you won't let them do it. And she said, well, we have to protect them, you know, from, you know, these kind of situations. So they want like pay or play. And, you know, a, a small budget production can't do that. Mm -hmm. So um, so then we, we were just kind of frustrated. We realized, well, okay, let's rewrite it as a short. So she rewrote it as a short. And then we made a trailer, a different trailer than what you saw. Um, and uh, raised, you know, raised funds through seedandspark.com. I know Seed and Spark. How did, how did you like using them as a means to get financing? I thought it was I thought it was good because we could get five hundred one you know people could get tax deductions because so they go the five hundred one c yeah they could go through um, Seed and Spark also hooks up with from the heart productions Carol Dean's uh, company so people that donated could get tax deductions which was nice and um, yeah that whole social media of like getting people to, to give you money I mean I hounded people on Facebook like every few minutes it seemed like. For the price of a latte, you could donate ten dollars to Shelby's vacation, you know. And we raised thirty-two thousand dollars, and um, you know, for a short film. For so. a forty-minute or not forty-minute feature, yeah. forty-minute short. Yeah, I mean, originally we were thinking it would be thirty, but that became a little unrealistic. So yeah, so um, and the Seed and Spark is good because you know, let's say you go to one of the other ones, Indie Indiegogo or Kickstarter. One of them, I forget, uh, you know, you get whatever money you raise. Do you remember which one that is? Is that Kickstarter? In Kickstarter, you, you have to get your goal. Oh, okay. you, you have to hit your goal, otherwise okay. it evaporates. Right. Oh, that, that sound was going to, that's going to be in there now. Um, <laughs> yes, there we go. Um, Indiegogo, you only have to get like a portion right. 
of what you're trying to get. Whatever you right. get, so you if get. You, if, you, if you're trying to raise 30000 and you only get 10000 what do you do with that money? Do you give it back to people? I mean, you can't make your movie for 10000 So what I liked about Seed and Spark was that it gave you a, a certain uh, accountability and a buy-in. So you had to reach 80% of your budget in order to get greenlit. And our budget, I think, was thirty-five. So we had to hit that twenty-eight thousand mark, or we would get nothing. And the last like week and a half, I'm like, I don't think we're gonna make it. And then all of a sudden, things just kind of took off, and we we made it up to thirty-two. So, what advice would you have for filmmakers that they have a project in mind and they know that it's gonna cost money to make it? Um, what can they be doing to really? get the money they need to make that film other than going through crowdfunding or I mean crowdfunding is is good um you know because especially if you build up I mean there's a lot a few companies now that that help you with your social marketing and if you have a good following I what what we're doing for small whispers this next project is we're trying to attach a known television star like a 25 year old you know, woman from Pretty Little Liars or Magicians or some show like that where they're not quite known. They're not they massive, have a, but they're not they massive, have an audience. but they have a following, like ten thousand Facebook followers or something. So something that would um, you know, it has to be the right type of projects. I mean, you can't you know, if you have a, a project starring forty year old people, you're not gonna attach, you know, you're not gonna get young people to do social media you know what I'm saying so you need you need to match the marketing strategy with your project you know if it's a science fiction thing or if it's a Marvel con you know if it's an anime or something you try to go to those areas um, do a lot of networking um, what 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 I think is a really successful way to do a film is most of the time you know you edit trailers based on what you've shot already which involves shooting it first. Mm -hmm. But if you go through the script and you create a, another script for a trailer, like what would you want to see in a trailer from this movie? And then you spend a day shooting those little bitty scenes. That's what I did with the trailer you saw. We, we, we just culled things from the script and kind of stuck it together. Do you know the filmmaker uh, Justin Simeon? Mm -mm. He, uh, first time writer director, he, um, for the film Dear White People. Oh, right. Came okay. out a couple years ago. Uh -huh. He was working in like marketing or promotions at, uh, I want to say Paramount. It, it was somewhere in town. And he took his tax, tax returns of like $5,000 <laughs> mm -hmm. and put it towards a trailer for Dear White People. Yeah. And he was using Twitter for years because the whole handle of Dear White People is kind of a funny Twitter yeah. handle to yeah. call out us for our hypocrisy. Right. But he took that money and put it towards his trailer, which mm. was able to get him the rest oh, of the yes, money in right. order to make the film. I mean, it's it's a strategy that involves a few months ahead of time you know, to build up the audience following to, um, and I could probably get you the names of the couple people that I know who do this kind of thing. But again, it costs money to get them to do it. But, you know, um, you just hound people and you, you, you give them something to latch on to. I mean, cause films are really great, but like Shelby's Vacation isn't necessarily a cause film. It's just about two women who meet each other at a point in their lives where they each act as a catalyst to the other's growth at that point. They're not 20-something. They're, you know, in their early 40s. Um, you know, one has always fantasized about relationships that never happen, and the other one kind of lives in the past with her memories, and each of them is afraid to be in the present. And so that's, you know, that's what it's about. And, and Oh, yeah. I cut you off. No, that's all right. And where are you currently at with the film? I know that... I. I know you're working on editorial and picture log and you're going to be going to sound. Where is it currently and when are you hope, hopefully getting it uh, out into the world? Well, we, we shot in August and September in both Topanga and Switzer Falls and, and Mount Baldy, which uh, was a story in itself. But, you know, one is like was green and there was hardly any water because we're still in the drought. We couldn't shoot at Switzer Falls like we were supposed to because of the sand fire. So they pulled all our permits away. So we had to go to Topanga, which was all dry and crunchy. And then I'm intercutting with green stuff with brown stuff. And 
And people have seen it and they go, I didn't even notice that. So that's a good thing. But we were all concerned about that. And of course, when they're walking, you hear the footsteps. Crunch, 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 yeah, crunch, didn't need crunch. any Foley for that part. Um, but, it, but at least the voice is still above the, the noise floor of the... So we're so I've been editing since September. We've done a couple of, um, of uh, feedback screenings for, you know, close filmmaker friends and family. And I, I'm, I'm a very collaborative filmmaker. Some people take that to be that I'm wishy-washy or indecisive and I tell everybody up front I said look I'm a collaborative filmmaker I yes I have an idea in my head but I also like the energy and synergy of, of you know asking you guys all for your input you know and um, even when we were shooting I, I said that to people well that's what they're makes... like well you're the director you decide it's like this is our film it's... you know filmmaking is more fun when you have people you love and you care with that are making it more fun because mm -hmm. if you're working on a project by yourself you can get stuck in your own head i mean even orson welles didn't make a movie by himself <laughs> he tried and <laughs> you it's know not I mean? fun no it's not fun and and you know you also want to work with um i mean we had i think of obstacles along any path as as a blessing in disguise because an obstacle is presented to you to kind of force you to maybe look at an alternative path mm -hmm. and our very first trailer that w we shot was with a completely different actress in the in the part of carol and she pulled out after a while we don't really know why but that was a blessing and then we got this actor great actress bryn horrocks who played um uh, mad men's uh, john ham's mother in mad men and she's a really good actress and um she finally like was that part that i always envisioned for her and people had always said, you know, make sure you cast the right people because then directing is a breeze, you know, because you don't want people who are so set in their ways for that character that they can't change, you know, based on your input or whatever. But you also want people to know what they're doing. And it, it, just, make, it just made the process so much fun. And they were both so good together. They had Laura Grimaldi plays Shelby. And she is kind of an up-and-coming actress, you know, late, later in life. Um, but she had that something that I saw that Shelby has. And, uh, so, and she and Bryn together had this nice chemistry. So it was really, it was really the best of both worlds kind of situation. And um, so right now we're, um, we're at, uh, I have picture lock. We're still doing a little final color correction with a, a Da Vinci editor guy, you know, on a Da Vinci Resolve. And uh, I'd say we're, and we've already submitted to three film festivals, like Outfest, Frameline, which are the two big gay, gay and lesbian film festivals, and uh, Holly Shorts, because they all accepted works in progress. And believe me, my temp, my temp uh, mixes on a movie are like most people's final. So I'm very proud to, you know, put it out there. But it still has temp music, like I have Lorena McKennett music in it, and, you know, I have to have all that replaced, but... And of course, I've grown to love it because it just works so well in the movie. And then you're going to replace it. And it's like, I don't know about this. I know. I actually wrote to Lorena McKennett to ask her if we could use these three pieces of music in the movie, but they haven't gotten back to me yet. So I'm going to try. But we'll see. I mean, I have a great composer, Marcy Vage, who did uh, my, my other short film, Click Three Times, which starred Isabel Sanford. I'll give you a DVD of it. When I, I, I'd love to see it, yeah, or you no. can send me the screener via... No, it's, it looks better on a DVD. I'll, I'll take it. you your... have a DVD player. Still. I do. Okay. It's... But we shot on 35. It started oh, really? Isabel Sanford from the Jeffersons. So you, sh and, you uh, shot on 35? Yeah, 35. Because everybody's going to like Aries or Reds or... Something. Well, Fences. Uh, Denzel shot Fences on 35 with a woman cinematographer. Too. That's but yeah. I'm stoked to see like those directors have enough confidence in the ability to go back and shoot 35 because it's like Tarantino is a perfect example of that. Mm. He refuses, and so does Christopher Nolan, to shoot anything yeah. digitally because it's it's mm -hmm. just one of those things where it's just. It doesn't have the latitude, really. I mean, her need for speed, the, the Harley Davidson thing with the horse, that was shot on 35. And that was just in 2008, so I still have cans of film in my, well, <laughs> my refrigerator out it's there. It's funny because it's like I've never shot on 35. I've mm. only known my little Lumix GH4, which yeah. is it's a solid little camera. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, Canon 60D, I mean, I have a Canon 70 as well. I've never shot on anything bigger than an airy I've, I've actually never shot on an airy or a red in 35 i don't even know where to approach a project of that 
nature, but it's, yeah. I find it exciting to hear from filmmakers like yourself that are embracing the technical and artistic challenges of shooting on a medium where people are like, why are you spending all your money on that when you can put it elsewhere? I mean, I think, again, it, it depends on, uh, you know, on the project. If the project warrants being on film, like that was, I know that was important for Denzel to have it shot on film because of the intimacy of it and the warmth of it. But, you know, I mean, there's so many different techniques now for digital to make it look like film and all that stuff that the purists are, you know, I mean, Kodak started making film again. So that's really cool. Bravo to you know? our friends in. Yeah. I could. Yeah. So, um, you know, I mean, it's a lot harder to do all your all your um, anime. I mean, everything once it's shot on film, of course, it just goes into digital and you just keep editing it the way you asked me a question before. I don't think I ever answered about going from film to digital, uh, I mean, I kind of went kicking and screaming because you always want to do what you know and, and it's hard to learn a new thing. But on the other hand, um, there's so much more I can do in Pro Tools than I could do on film. Although we use the same techniques. I mean, my mom had a way of making a forward and backward loop um, of film like in, in Pro Tools, you know, you can take a piece and duplicate it and then reverse it so that you have the out going of the end of the first piece going to the outgoing of the mm -hmm. reverse piece. So you can make a longer loop of ambient background mainly. Mm -hmm. So she did that before anybody could do it, but it was a five step process. You know, now in Pro Tools, you just duplicate, reverse, you know, duplicate both of those, listen for any clicks or things that would, you know, be obnoxious. And well, even in Premiere, that's easy because it's like, like I said, I started out on Final Cut Pro and Premiere mm -hmm. is in many ways, the continuation of what Apple should have done originally right. rather than... It's Final Cut Pro 8. <laughs> it is. It's heard. I, will, yeah. I refuse to... to, to all, if I'm given a project and they tell me, we're cutting this on Final Cut Pro 10, I'll, I'll not do it. <laughs> but I'd rather be cutting on Premiere um, or Avid. But my point is, like, with, with Premiere... Or Final Cut. It's just, I select my clip, Command-J, reverse. Okay. Hmm. Sound-wise? Well... I mean, sound-wise, you can do that? Well, or are if you I... talking about reversing the picture? With video, but you could do it with sound oh. as well, oh, because cool. if you just select that clip, you're not... Right. It's not an effect, you're just... It's a speed control mm. option within right, right. Premiere or Final Cut mm -hmm. or Avid. You're just right. reversing the direction of the sound in right. which it's playing at, and then you just... Yeah. But you know, in Pro Tools, uh, I mean, Final Cut, you can only you're only you can only move things a frame. Like in Pro Tools, we get down to you know a, a milli you know a millimeter of sound. Oh, know, I know. Uh, a subframe, and um, for its all its uh, cleanup tools, Isotope, which is a plugin that can reduce hum and background and stuff like that. I mean, I use that all the time now when I'm editing because, you know, it used to be I would leave it to the mixers to do because they had much more fancier and better tools. But now Isotope has gotten so good that editors are doing what mixers used to do. Well, it's funny because it's like even in, Ado in Adobe Audition, like in Premiere or Final Cut or Avid, you're relegated to frames. That's right. the counting mechanism yeah. of, of uh, film. Mm -hmm. But I've found like even when I, I have to do some sound work, I can't get it as close as I want no, with just can't. frames. Like yeah, you can. At 24 frames per second, 30 frames per second, 60, 96, it doesn't matter the right. increments of frames per second. I can't get, there's, there's... Like if you want to move music a half a frame, you can't do it. Well, it's not even that. <laughs> it's like if I want to remove a right. little thing that's yeah. right there, that Spike. little thing right, right. there, yeah, you can't I can't it. get to right. it. And it's like, I found that like in college when I was just making stuff mm. on my own, I'm like... I can't get to it. Right. I'm all the way down at the frame level. I can't yeah. cut it. Right. And it, I, Yeah, I mean, at least on film, you could get to a, a quarter of a frame. Was the was the tiniest increment you could cut out. You know, so... On, like on Ironweed, there was a sequence where they're walking along a street, and um, it's a period piece, but the mixer was hearing modern traffic, so he mic'd, he mic'd them from below while they're walking, aiming up at their at their voices. But you heard all this gritty mm -hmm. footsteps. So a ninety, a, a minute and a half scene. I spent probably a day or two 
cutting out as much as I could of the grit because we were on film. I mean, nowadays mm-hmm. I would put it through spectral repair and I'd see yeah. all the spikes and I'd just, you know, erase them out. But, you know, back then, I mean, again, it's it's problem solving. That's all it is. All editing is problem solving to make the best compilation of what tells the story the best way. Absolutely. So So when are you hoping to get Shelby's vacation done? You oh, said sorry, you never finished No, it. you're fine. It's yeah, like, um, I, I love these little tangents. Yeah. Um, we get more out well, of them. Well, by the end of the month, I mean, we uh, maybe, or the beginning of March, it really depends on when my music is uh, getting done. Um, and then I have to approve it and work, you know, see if I like it and, you know, that kind of stuff. So we're, we're at the final process. We're going to do color correction, still another day of that or four hours. And, uh, I have a visual effects cause somebody forgot that Shelby had a logo on her sweater that we need to take off. So that becomes a visual effect and, uh, you know, different things like that, fonts and titles, but the picture itself is locked. So, um, and we could submit it as a works in progress to film festivals, which we're starting to do. So it's pretty, it's pretty exciting because I really wanted to get out there in the world. It's a very, um, and I can send you a link to it too, I, if you want to see the whole thing. To seeing yeah, it. Um, you know, because I, I love input, and most of the time, I've gotten. It's funny. I I, I met a fellow when I was. Uh, taking click three times out on the festival circuit back in 2000 and he had his film in a festival and um we met and we became friends he's an ohio filmmaker and i hadn't heard from him in years and he's a a white straight christian guy right and here's my lesbian film (laughs) my lesbian love story so it's not really a love story but it has that element in it so he, he calls me up out of the blue and just says hey how are you doing I said, great, I'm just finishing up Shelby's vacation. I said, would you would you care to see a link? I said, I'm not sure it's the kind of film you might like. but So he, he, he wrote back the most beautiful letter of like how, how wonderful he thought the film was and what a good job I did with it. And, and uh, you know, made a couple of suggestions, which I actually incorporated into the cut just last week. And um, so I figure, well, if it can reach, you know, a white, straight <laughs> Christian guy, you know, for what it for what the film is, that's good because it's not just like a gay film, and we're going to submit it to other festivals besides, you know, gay and lesbian film mm-hmm. festivals. So, well, I think that's the importance of film, right there. Right, exactly. Is, I was talking it can cross it can cro- it can make bridges. I was talking with a buddy from college, and he's a uh, he's a movie operator. If you know what those mm-hmm. are, they're they're three axis gimbal systems. Oh, so you can. You can do some of the most amazing camera moves in the world. Like wow. you can roll, you can you can rollerblade up to like a window, hand the rig off, and continue the shot through the Whoa. building because it's a it's a gimbal system like you would have on a How cool. on a helicopter. Wow! It's um yeah. We had a drone. We have a couple drone yeah. shots. So you know how there's a gimbal that mm-hmm. balances the camera and keeps right. it steady. They've figured out how to make these gimbal systems big enough for reds airy minis gh5s 5ds and you can produce really interesting stuff but i digress um (laughs) that's cool when talking with reed he said like i love working in film because i get to work on projects that challenge people socially Mm. in terms of their viewpoints in the world they live in because living in los angeles yes it is a very liberal place that's not a bad thing right but I think what film and entertainment does, regardless of one's political affiliation, whether it's conservative, something from a conservative point of view mm-hmm. or something from a liberal point of view, it challenges us to think about something from a different perspective that we normally wouldn't. Right. And that's the buy-in that people have to, you have to kind of get them so that they buy in to watching the movie, you know? And I think... If people did this with trailers in order to raise money, I mean, I was even thinking of that as a business. Like, wouldn't it be cool? You take people's scripts, you pull out pieces of the script that you think would make a cool trailer. Mm-hmm. And then you have some voiceover, you have something. And you, you know, and you can give the filmmaker, like, a piece mm-hmm. to use for their filmmaking. Absolutely. Before they've even shot the movie, you know? Like, you cast it, you do this stuff, and... You know, I, th- I think it's a great way to get your project out there and get people interested in it, even if it isn't a cause movie, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And and, and another hint on making um, promotional pieces is 
make sure you record people properly. Don't use the camera sound. I can't tell you how many pieces that people have sent me like, oh, here's our Kickstarter program, you know, or... Where they just, it's just the camera it's just the mic. the camera sound, the camera mic, and they're like way off mic in a in a, in an echoey room. And I was like, really? You're, you're asking me to give you money to make a project when you can't even make a trailer, I mean, a promo that has good sound, you know? Mm. No, I don't want to give you anything. There was a uh, director... <laughs> In Seattle, his name is Zia Moshahabi. Mm. He's that's uh, a name. It's it's it's, <laughs> it's one hell of a name. He's wow. a cinematographer. He's oh. and director, and he did a music video for Macklemore, mm. um, and they raised the money through Kickstarter. They got sixteen thousand dollars, but they did exactly what you didn't want them to do in terms of <laughs> having just the camera sound. Yeah, but. Maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe the point th- is it doesn't matter. I think matter. it does matter, I though. I mean, I think... Well, it matters to me. Like, when I... I I'm a, a Nichols uh, reader for the scripts, you know, mm-hmm. for the Academy. And I can't tell... And, and for the AFI's Director Workshop for Women and various other things. But I can't tell you how it turns me off when I read a script that has, like, spelling errors and grammar errors. And it's like, come on, you guys are turning in a script to professionals what do you think we think of you when you can't spell, you don't know the difference between there, T-H-E-R-E, and T-H-E-I-R? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, okay, it's spelled correctly, but it's not used correctly, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. And it just, it's like, no, you want to be professional all the way. And I think that's how you get good at something. Before you said, what do we tell young people that want to do this? It's like, try it out. See if you get good at it. See if you like it. Because if you don't like it and you're not hungry to do it, you know, nobody wants to hire you if you don't seem hungry to do it. Mm-hmm. Like, you really have to have some passion behind it. Mm-hmm. And be proactive. Don't just wait for things to come to you. Be proactive. Go after things. Those are the people that I notice in my classes from even the first night. Like, are they slouching in their seat? Or are they look? you know, they're doing this on their phone or something? You know, are they... And, and I only have maybe 10 people in the class. So it's not like a big lecture hall where you can hide what yeah. you're doing. And, um, and I was like, wow, you guys really don't want to do this, huh? And they're like, no, what do you mean? I said, well, you're slouching in your seat. You're on your phone. I'm, uh, I'm talking. You're not listening. I mean, what do I, you know, how do I supposed to interpret that? Like, you don't really want it. And they're just used to that behavior because mm-hmm. we have so many things to distract us in life. And, um, you know, okay, so maybe I'm talking. I get boring. I don't know. <laughs> I, I want to be respectful of your time. We've had okay, a cool. decent conversation Final thoughts, if you could impart me or listeners with final thoughts of any advice, what would that be? Oh, it's, it's a big question, it but big it's question. like, I'm... I, th- I would say, I, I and I'm, I mean this sincerely, I mean, I wish I had done it when I was younger and just bit the bullet and took the cut and pay and just did what I wanted to do. Just, you know, write good scripts, write good stories, or find somebody who writes a good story with a good beginning, middle, and end that involves people in the movie that somebody would want to see on a big screen, that other people would want to pay to see on a big screen, that other people would want to pay to make to be seen on a big screen, and do that. You know, write it, direct it, get practice. You can do it on your iPhone. You know, you can do it with a cheap camera and some people get practice doing it. Don't reinvent the wheel over and over. You know, learn from who's come before you. Get people on your team who know what they're doing. Try And the biggest thing, I think, is just to think ahead. Just like when you direct, you know, you have to direct to edit. You can't mm-hmm. have people crossing the line all the time. And, and you can't you can't shoot a bunch of pretty shots that won't edit together. So you have to envision down the road, what is it going to look like? you know, on the big screen. How are you going to, how are you going to get this thing edited if you're not, you know, directing good shots to get that? You know, is the lighting going to match? Is, is it a consistent story? You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, we've all written wonderful things that can't even be shot on the, on the butt. I mean, we're envisioning all of us as, as Spielberg or Lucas, you know, Mm -hmm. um, in that sense. And I would love that, but you sometimes have to tone it down and as I said before, the obstacles you know that you run into are really opportunities to go a different direction that may make the project better and may make you better. I mean, nobody learns as much from their successes as they do their failures. Like when you watch, I have a 20-month-old granddaughter, right? When I watched her trying to learn how to walk, I mean, she fell down a lot, but she also saw that other people were walking, so she knew it was possible. 
And she just had to figure out a way to keep getting up and falling and getting up and falling and getting up. And finally she got up and she stayed that way. You know what I mean? So we, we, we don't learn from just getting there from A to Z. You have to kind of go through the process, you know? And mm-hmm. I was reminded of, um, uh, I think it was Picasso who um, drew very detailed um, anatomical drawings of bulls, okay? Like de- really, really detailed. And then he did that for a couple months and then finally he picked up his charcoal and he went and drew like five lines and that was a bull. Hmm. But, you know, you, it's like, uh, I think it was even Coppola who said, you know, you have to learn all the rules to in order to break them. You know, especially in filmmaking. You know, if you learn them, then you have a way to go your own direction. But, you know, do something that you really love doing and you're passionate about. I think that's the biggest thing. you got to be passionate about it. You know, whether it's sweeping the floor or it's making or directing a film or editing or doing any of the phases, you know. So. And on that, I don't think there's any way better to finish it. Cool. <laughs> cool. All Thank right. Thank you, Vicky. You're very welcome. Well, that was my conversation with Vicky Sampson. Big thanks to Vicky for coming on the show. I know that I found it super insightful, and I hope that you did as well. If you are enjoying Render Time, please leave a review and rating on iTunes. That would help more people find the show and ultimately use it as a resource on their own creative journeys. You can also follow me and the projects that I'm involved with by following me on social media. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Well, that's all the time we got for this episode. Until next time, create, share, and sustain the life that you want. Get out there and make some awesome work. Thanks, guys. I'll talk to you soon.